Hello and welcome to the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, brought to you by Journey Dog Training and the Pandemic Puppy Raising Facebook group. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm so excited to be here with you. We are going to cover puppy raising right from the start on this podcast, and although I'm a professional dog trainer, this is actually going to be my first time raising a puppy too. So I'm right in the trenches with you guys on the good, the bad, the cute, and the stinky. So we are here again today with Megan Wallace and Amber Kwan talking about picking a puppy from a breeder. We had hoped to manage to get this mixed in with our picking a breeder episode, and it was just way too long. So we're back again. I'll let uh, Megan introduce herself and then Amber again, just so you guys remember what they sound like. Hi, I'm Megan Wallace, and um, I have a professional dog training business called Dogs Deciphered. Um, I'm very passionate about nose work, and I am currently also raising a puppy who is almost nine months old, a border collie named Han Solo. And hi, I'm Amber Kwan, and I also have a dog training company here in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, Summit Dog Training. And uh, I love doing all things outdoors with my dogs, puppies, uh, and currently my um, adventure puppy in training is Jameson, who is a little papillon who just turned one year old this week. Uh, so he's been really fun to um, get to enjoy puppyhood with. Excellent. So we're going to dive right into it with kind of thinking about the requirements of your potential puppy. And, you know, right from the start, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is going to vary from person to person. Obviously, my list and Amber's list are not going to look the same, even though we're both professional dog trainers who love being outside with our dogs. Um, and we're both going to look really different from my 65-year-old father versus, a, you know, some of my friends were, were in our mid to late 20s and starting to get married and think about kids. You know, any dog we're bringing home is going to be around babies. Um, and it's going to vary from, you know, moment to moment within your life. Um, and things are going, some people are going to have more stringent requirements than others, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and it's okay to have a really, really long list of things that you're looking for in your puppy. And it's okay if you're a lot more flexible. We're going to outline some of the things that we take into consideration when we're thinking about our puppy. But it's totally fine if you listen to some of these things and you just think, yeah, you know, honestly, that doesn't matter to me too much. You, It still might be useful to think about what parameters don't work for you. Um, you know, if you're relatively flexible on your dog's energy level, but you know that you want a dog who can at least do X or does not require Y, then, you know, that's still part of your, your puppy search. So we really recommend trying to be clear with yourself and your family, anyone else who's living with the dog about you, what you really, really need with the puppy versus what you want, but can be flexible on versus things that are kind of more bonus points. Um, and I'll link in the show notes here. I actually created a score sheet when I was looking for barley that had everything broken down into those categories, ranging from stuff that like was an absolute no go. There was there's no way that I could be flexible on some of these things. Um, and the, the one that I always remember from that was that I owned a parrot at the time. And I absolutely could not bring home a dog that was going to kill my parrot. <laughs> um, you know, first first pet had rights over, over potential pet. You know, and then it kind of went all the way down in importance from there to I had a preference for dogs with clear toenails because that makes toenail trims easier. So if I had the choice between two littermates and one of them had white toenails and one of them didn't, that's the one I was bringing home, but I obviously wasn't going to pass up on a dog for that issue. So before we kind of start diving into our list, do you guys have anything that you wanted to add kind of on the topic of thinking through, you know, what your list is like? I think that uh, in addition to evaluating your own personal list, I think you touched on this a little bit. It's also really important to consider any immediate family members um, lists and requirements as well. Um, because, you know, as a dog person, we often can be willing to overlook things that certain of our family members who have to live with the dog as well might not be able to. So um, if your, you know, significant other or your, uh, you know, one of your children has you know, a strong allergic reaction to certain types of dog hair, but you don't like, it's still important to consider that. Or, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe you have a, 
um, a family member who had a bad experience with a certain type of dogs in their childhood, and that would cause some uh, additional concern and phobias with a new puppy. So like taking those things into consideration as well, because if you're all on the same page about what type of dog, um, or at least what category of dog that you are looking for, that can uh, just prompt harmony uh, for for the new puppy from the, the very first uh, time that they come in. Yeah, and I think um, continuing even on that and, and kind of bouncing off of Kayla's point about her parrot um, is that you do have to consider the current dogs in the home. So, you know, I live and have lived with many Border Collies for most of my life, and there are certain types of dogs that mesh well with groups of Border Collies and others that don't. They don't love um, breeds that like a lot of body slamming and that sort of play. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think about that sort of thing in terms of if I were to bring a different breed into the house, so I have a Rhodesian Ridgeback, um, and he meshes very well with the group of Border Collies because he really likes a lot of running, chasing type of play, um, and they like running and chasing him and hurting him and, and, you know, that sort of thing. But there are certain breed types that wouldn't really be a good mesh for my household, and always having multiple dogs, dog sociability is very much at the top of my list. Um, I've lived with dogs that were uh, not necessarily overly friendly toward outside dogs um, that didn't live in our household, but it is very important that all the dogs within my household uh, get along. And that is something that I would consider rehoming a, a dog for is if there was started to be major conflict within my home, because I don't think that's a risk that I'm willing mm -hmm. to live with. So I think it's important to really consider all of the the beings in your home, whether they're human or dog or cat um, or parrot, and just mm -hmm. uh, really look at all of the factors that could really affect that that puppy's ability to fit in with your household. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you're looking at getting the dog, you know, I think the three of us come from a place where because we're the professional dog trainers in our household, it's relatively assumed or even explicitly stated, like, this is my puppy. Um, but if you're really, you know, you and your partner are looking together for a dog or you're looking at getting a dog for the family, even if you're the one who's kind of taking the helm with the puppy search and will likely be doing a lot of the training, that doesn't mean that... Um, in, in most family dynamics, unless this has been explicitly stated, that probably doesn't mean you get to make all of the decisions without more input. Um, and just being really clear about that, and we'll talk about this again when we talk more about introductory manners and these sorts of things, but it's going to be a lot harder to raise your puppy successfully if you disagree about whether or not your dog is allowed on the couch, or if, you know, I really wanted a lab and my partner really hates vacuuming up hair, and for the next 15 years we're arguing about the fact that you know he's like I thought we were going to get a poodle and I was like well we got a lab like right you, yeah. trying to be as considerate as possible and finding a nice middle ground for for um your whole family yeah. is really really important my husband is allergic to dogs, believe it or not. And I um, took a risk when we uh, got married and I was like, oh, I will work within these parameters and I will find dogs that fit within our um, our household in consideration of that so that we can, you know, live in as much harmony as possible. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think there are a couple, um, you know, points that we want to bring up that, that, also are important kind of at the start here. So one of the first things that I always want to talk to people about is, you know, just the reminder that being quote unquote, just a family dog is not necessarily an easy job or a given. So a lot of times when I'm talking to people about, you know, coaching them through finding a puppy or choosing a breeder or choosing a breed, you know, whatever stage they're at in the process, um, I remind them that, you know, assuming that all dogs are going to be okay with, you know, guests coming and staying in the guest room and, you know, your aunt visiting at Christmas with her cat and you go and watch soccer games uh, when your partner plays pickup, you know, I mean, and all of this isn't happening in the pandemic, but, you know, just because you feel like you live a very average life and, you, you know, you don't want to show the dog, you don't want to compete with the dog, you don't want to do any sports. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't have any requirements for what's going on with your puppy. So just because you are like, well, you know, I just kind of want a pet. Like, don't don't stop listening now. We've got a lot to say to you anyway. Yes. <laughs> um, and then the other point that I, I think is important to bring up, and maybe Megan, because you're the one with breeding experience, you can talk to this a bit, is just that different dogs within a litter and breed are going to differ. I know a lot of times when I 
worked at the shelter, people would come to us and they say, you know, we've had German shepherds all our lives. And, um, you know, we just, we're not going to be able to keep this one. She's just, she's crazy. There's something wrong with her, you know, whatever. And, um, you would get into it a little bit with them and you'd find that, you know, it actually sounds like some of their shepherds had come from a very different line of breeder or, or, you know, whatever it is. But I think sometimes there's an assumption that like, well, I've always had labs, so this lab will just be the same. Or, well, they're all labs, they're all full siblings, I can just kind of grab the one I like. Um, so again, Megan, because you've got the experience of breeding, you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is I was just trying to count up in my head. I think that um, our family is owned close to probably around 15 different border collies, a lot of them related to one another um, from the same family line. And while there are definitely familiar familial similarities um, with some of those dogs and things we go, oh my gosh, that's so much like her grandmother, um, which is always fun. They are all very much individuals and have really ranged in their ability. We have dogs who would be just love going to a farmer's market and seeing all the people and checking out all the sights and sounds. And they would just think that is the most fun day in the world. And we have other dogs who are related to them who that looks like a nightmare situation to them, that they are successful in doing a lot of other things, but just taking them to a social space where they're expected to just enjoy being around people and other dogs and lots of sights and sounds is not their forte. Um, so I have had a lot of personal experiences with that. And, and also like you say, um, that you've been in the shelter, I've seen that a lot with my clients where you know I had a whole uh, string of clients who all of them had owned that breed many times before. And they said the same thing to me. This is the toughest blank I have ever owned, right? This is the toughest Roddy I've ever owned. This is the toughest, you know, Wheaton Terrier I've ever owned. Like all these people who had experience with the breed before, and this puppy is an individual and it is different from what they um, were expecting. And that is definitely something that I think can take people by surprise, especially you know, even some of these cases where they went back to the same breeder mm -hmm. expected, like, I can't believe that this dog isn't, you know, living up to the same standards or the same ideals that they had with their previous dog. And I think that it's also important in that moment for us who are trying to make that comparison between two dogs that we've had, um, you know, whether they're the same breed or same general category of breed, uh, like I had a healer mix before and this healer mix is completely different. You know, it's important to look at the puppy in front of us. This is, I guess, assuming you already have the puppy in your household and say like, this puppy isn't, there's not necessarily something wrong with this puppy. It's just a different representation of this breed. And, uh, maybe the, my previous dog spoiled me rotten <laughs> by being um, perfect and wonderful in all of these ways that I never even thought. And so we took them for granted. And then this puppy in front of me looks completely different, um, in, in practice. And that goes back to, you know, our main point of like picking a puppy. We want to be looking for, um, qualities consistently. Like if you, if you remembered your, your previous dog was, you know, pretty outgoing and met you at the edge of the pen when you went to pick it up from the breeder, like you want to be looking for some of those same things when you go to pick, mm -hmm. um, uh, your next puppy, if that dog, um, that you have had in your family, like really fit really well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know I talked to a lot of my breeder, the breeders that I spoke to about, you know, I was like, I know this isn't an actual expectation that I can like really hold the puppy to, but I want as close to my current dog as possible, yeah. <laughs> you know? So like, here's, here's what I know about him now. Here's what that looks like. I didn't know him as a puppy, but you know, based on the parents that you've got and you know, all of this, does that sound like something you're likely to get? And, you know, deferring to the breeder on their experience with how the puppies are likely to mature um, and what they know about their personalities. And I think it, I don't know if it goes without saying, because I'm going to say it anyway, but um, it's not all in how you raise them. So I think, again, you know, that's kind of the last like myth that we wanted to get out of the way. And, you know, obviously, if you're worried about which puppy to get, as because on some level, you understand that. Um, but, you know, even us professional trainers recognize that we can't really just take any puppy off the street and train it up to be whatever it is that we want out of it. Um, 
So again, even if you're relatively flexible in what you're looking for, know that that doesn't mean that any puppy will work. Um, I've been teaching puppy kindergarten classes lately and have been watching um, a young family that is really, really struggling with a Malinois puppy. Um, and they consistently are not great at following instructions in class and are always forgetting things. And there are a lot of things looking, looking at with them that, it, you know, it's, they're not bad people. They're not pu bad puppy owners, but they're really struggling because they just, they brought home really, really the wrong breed for their current skill level. And um, I would potentially even personality traits, just that they're not super on their game with, um, with the puppy raising thing at all times. And you, you have to be fast with Malinois. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so the point is like, like it's when, you know, we said this before, but before you get the puppy in your home, it's relatively prudent to assume that everything you see with the puppy and everything you see with the parents is what you're going to get. Assume it's all genetic before you get the puppy. Obviously, yes, you can train, but, um, you know, it's important to choose wisely because once you get the puppy home, um, it's not just a, a pair of shoes you can go back and try, uh, try a different size on later if you realize that you've made a mistake. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the breeder pairing you with the puppy, um, how that goes. I know a lot of people have different and sometimes strong feelings about that. Um, so, Amber, do you want to talk about some of the pros and cons of different approaches to take with that? Sure. So uh, the concept of a breeder, the kind of picking your puppy for you is rooted in this idea that there's no one that knows the puppy better than the breeder does. And that's, um, th that's just a fact. <laughs> they live with the puppy for, um, they live with the mom and possibly the sire as well. Um, and know them really well. And then they know the puppies from day one up through the time that they're going home. And so they see those nuances of behavior that, those of us who are picking a puppy, when we come to visit, even if we can visit several times, we're not privy to all of those nuances of their behavior that the breeder will know in and out. And so while it might seem um, strange to think about like a breeder picking a puppy for you and saying, this one's yours, actually, in most circumstances, it is kind of a, a labor of love on the part of the breeder and a um, a really... Um, big kind of stamp of approval that the breeder feels like you would be a good match for the puppy um, and the puppy would be a good match for you. And to do this, um, the breeder, and we talked about picking a breeder last time, um, so I won't get into this a lot, but should be asking questions about you and what your goals are for the puppy and then observing the puppies in their care and being like, this one I think that this one has the best chance of being prepared to do all of the things that you're asking for. And so Absolutely. that's, yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's the pros. And, and I tend to fall into that camp, like thinking that the, the pros of that are worth any downsides. You know, some of the downsides are like, we want to feel invested in, you know, choosing the, the dog that we're going to be with and, um, you know, having so, sort of maybe a love marriage instead of an arranged marriage, so to speak. <laughs> and um, as a as a culture, I think we, we value that and feel like that is more important. And, you know, we can often go to a shelter and do that. We pick the one and, um, and have that connection. Mm -hmm. And that makes us feel like it's right from the beginning. Um, but I think that, we risk there letting our emotions get in the way, um, like not being able to have an objective evaluation of the puppy's behavior like the breeder can um, because we can get a little bit emotionally invested in one puppy that might not be quite exactly right for us. Yeah. Isn't that what happened with your Ridgeback, Megan? Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking that, that I, um, I, and I knew I had had enough experience with picking puppies or having breeders pick puppies, um, for me that I, I tried not to get too emotionally invested, but it is hard not to, you know, just one that you think is cute or, you know, mm -hmm. that puppy just loves sleeping in my lap and who doesn't love a puppy sleeping in their lap. So that was in oh, or this one got, I, I know I totally fell in love with my puppy when he was, I don't think he was the first one to start tugging. There was about three that started playing tug of war around the same age, but the breeder got a really cute picture of him tugging. Um, <laughs> and you know, like I just totally fell for it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I think potential downsides of the breeder weighing in or the breeder picking for you 
could come up kind of depending on a couple different factors. You know, I think it could be a little riskier if the breeder doesn't know you as well or hasn't taken the time to get to know you as well. Um, and they just don't quite know what you're looking for. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a breeder worth going to. Um, but, you know, that could certainly be problematic. Although if they that's their approach, they're likely not trying to pick for you. Um, I had an experience with a breeder when I was looking for Jameson that kind of illustrates that point and where I had contacted them and um, kind of told outlined a little bit of what I was looking to do. And, and their first response was, Oh, I have the perfect puppy for you. He's almost a year old and he missed some key socialization um, during, you know, some, some early months because we had stuff going on. And so, but he's been with me and, but he would be a great dog. He just needs a little work. And I was like, no, sorry, that's not going to work for me. And I felt like the breeder didn't take the time to really understand what I was looking for. And mm -hmm. so I was like, I'm moving on. This is not the relationship for me. But it took like me saying, no, I am not going to just take this, um, th this easy, convenient, like, oh, of course. Yeah, great. This will work out. You think this is right for me. But knowing what I wanted and knowing that this wasn't the yeah. right answer. Yeah, I think, you know, being able to really trust the breeder to pair you with a puppy requires that you really trust the breeder. So if you and the breeder have not gotten, you know, to know each other really well, or that's not quite their personality, again, it doesn't mean that they don't produce nice dogs. It doesn't mean you can't go to them. But if they haven't taken the time to get to know you and insist on choosing the puppy or, you know, if their kind of understanding of dog behavior is dramatically different from yours, um, that could all be red flags. I do also know a fair number of working dog people um, who do insist on at least having strong input in their dog. Um, and so it is a little bit different. You know, I think our aim here is to talk more to people who want pets. Um, so, but if someone here is listening and you're very into dog sports or very into working dogs, you, you might need to have a little bit more input, especially if you're going to a breeder who is not really, really well-versed in what you're looking for. So when I was taking home and selecting my puppy, um, my breeder was not breeding for detection dogs. She was not looking for um, creating a search and rescue dog. <clears throat> so she asked me what tests I wanted to do. And that didn't mean that I got to pick outright, but you know, we were involved in the decision. So there's a bunch of different ways that this can go, but you know, I think like everything we've been saying, uh, it's really normal for a breeder to at least have some heavy input in pairing with you. And that is not something to be afraid of as long as you also trust your breeder. Yeah. And just thinking about, you know, kind of disadvantages to the breeder picking, even though I generally fall in the camp that I like, uh, I like the breeder to have at least a big amount of input is as a potential pet owner, you may find that your breeders priorities don't always align with yours in the same way. And the, this, where this came up in my mind as a breeder is that we have some puppies or puppy requests for puppies from search and rescue homes. And that can be a very specific um, set of traits. And that puppy may be able to be successful as a pet as well, depending on how active the, the family is. But we are unlikely to place that puppy as a pet if there is someone who would like to rescue with their puppy, um, because we know that that's a more rare thing to find within a litter um, than, you know, being a nice active pet. Um, and so there may be times where, you know, if you are not necessarily, if you don't have a, a big list of priorities, um, I guess I could see a situation where maybe it would feel like you got put lower on the list of, of choice because someone else had kind of more specific needs for their puppy. So it's not necessarily something that, um, you know, is bad or good, but it is just something to think about that I think also highlights why if you're really, your main goal with a dog is to be a good family pet, um, then, you know, aligning with a breeder who that's the majority of what they're producing is going to be your best bet. Because for us, we might have pet dogs that are appropriate for a very specific type of pet owner. Um, but not just your general, you know, this is going to be an easy family dog no matter what, because they're border collies. 
So um, yeah, I think that that's definitely something that breeders have to think about is how, you know, with the puppies that are in the litter, who fits into what home best. Um, and so I think if someone has less, um, you know, they're being less selective in what they need, they may, um, you know, have a little less selection in which puppy they're Yeah, they're yeah I think home. clarity is really helpful for breeders. Um, and yeah, I mean, I love that you you helped remake the point, which people are just going to get sick of us hearing is, you know, really making sure that you've picked a breed and breeder that fit with your goals is probably the most important thing. Um, and then picking from a puppy within those parameters. So, you know, as we've also talked about um, in this episode, as well as our last, you know, providing your breeder with a lot of information on your goals, your lifestyle, your needs to help that breeder along in that selection process. And again, that's where it's so important to have a breeder who really understands and is familiar with the job that you are asking the puppy to do. And again, being a pet who is comfortable going to the farmer's market and soccer matches is a job. And for some breeds, that's going to be a harder job than agility would be. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about color and looks and some of those sorts of things. I think there's a little bit of a, a taboo um, with admitting that you're looking for a specific color or specific looks at all. Um, but I actually think that it's it's a valid thing to have within your your wish list, within your search criteria. Um, so Megan, do you have anything to add on, you know, color, looks, all that sort of stuff? Um, yeah, I think that it is definitely can be one of your selection points. I think when you're prioritizing what is the most important to you, um, you just have to consider how important that is to you because it may mean that you have to wait for another litter or, you know, just wait for longer to be matched with the perfect puppy for you. So if you have very specific desires, that's fine, but just recognize that that may um, push out your, your weight a little bit longer. Whereas if you're a little bit more flexible and you say, you know, I really don't care about color, then that's just not a factor that's on your list. Um, I do think it is important to recognize that certain colors, especially some that people think are very desirable, um, can be associated with certain health outcomes. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit last week about white headedness in border collies and, and some other related breeds certainly have this too, um, that there can be health outcomes associated with hearing. Um, you know, merle dogs, if a breeder is producing double merles, that can be very detrimental to the puppy's health. Um, so even though, yes, sometimes they get very pretty puppies, um, and that's the only way that you can get an entirely merle litter, it's really not an ethical way to breed. Um, you know, other things that I can think of are like dilute colors. Um, some of the, like the blues and um, dilute reds and those sorts of colors can be associated with certain types of alopecia of hair loss. Um, so just these are sorts of things that, you know, you want to connect with the breeder and be talking with them about, you know, if they are someone who has dogs of lots of colors, then they probably know um, a lot about the effects of those different colors. But I think that there are certainly breeds where there are kind of fad colors that aren't necessarily, um, you know, those those breeders who follow those trends may not be following the whole checklist that we gave you last time in terms of being a really responsible breeder. So don't get so fixated on color that that, um, you know, drives your breeder choice to someone who may not be doing as good of a job in all of the other points that are so important that we talked about. Yeah, I kind of thought of my my color search as like a series of concentric circles. <laughs> as far as you know, I knew my number one concern is I just want a dog who is like emotionally stable and healthy. You know, I, I, like that is the number one thing I'm looking for. And then within that, I want a dog who can work and play with me the way that I want to play, which is an intense and high bar out there. And then within that, I was also really hoping for prick ears, rough coat and not black and white and uh, I, I was absolutely willing to take home another black and white border collie because I recognized that the other bars I was setting were already pretty constrictive. Um, but I also was willing to wait. Um, and I've been really lucky so far. You know, I was relatively flexible on color in that I just mostly didn't want plain black and white. Um, 
but if, you know, we mentioned uh, earlier, like red sable is a very striking color in border collies and quite rare. Gold is another one, which is a version of dilute red. You know, if I'd had my heart set on one of those two colors, I would still be waiting. Um, the litter that I'm getting from actually did have a red sable in it, but she absolutely was not the right personality fit for me. And if you're flexible on personality, you it could have worked for you. Um, but I think it's important with looks in general is that I think health should still always come first before color um, and temperament fit should also come first and just try really hard to be honest with yourself about whether you're making excuses about a temperament fit fit in order to get yourself the right color. Um, and again, some amount of flexibility is okay. You know, if you're like, you know, actually, I really, really want this color because I'm a professional pet portrait photographer and this is important to me. Um, then that's okay. Um, you know, and you're like, and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take a dog who, you know, maybe is less driven or uh, more active than I was anticipating. I can rise to those challenges. That's, that's great. Um, so do you guys, Amber, do you have anything you want to add on that? I think that uh, you hit most of the, uh, the really important pieces and like, we all want the, the dog that's beautiful and wonderful. And I think that, um, to some extent, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so colors can't, while they can certainly um, add to a dog's aesthetic, like whatever color you end up with dog wise, if it's the right dog for you, you're going to end up thinking it's the most beautiful dog in the world. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Yeah, I know when I um I used to run a lot of Malinois um, and they've got, you know, kind of that sandy mottled coat with the dark ears and the dark face, most of them at least. Um, and I always noticed that when I was running them through really tall grassy fields, I lost them in a way that I never lose my black and white border collie. And it was like, oh, I don't know if I like this color, which I never really thought of before because, you know, I never realized how easy it was for me to see my black and white dog in the vast majority of landscapes. Um, although if the right dog came uh, came along, you know, get a visibility vest. So yeah. there are also potentially practical reasons for color choice, but mm -hmm. um, you might have options within that anyway. So why don't we, before we go to break, why don't we kind of go around and talk about all the things that we each considered when we were getting our puppy. Um, we all have relatively young um, dogs in our homes, or I'm actually going to pick up my puppy tomorrow. Um, so by the time you guys hear this, my puppy will be home. Uh, and we have kind of different experiences. So I can go first because I'm already talking. Um And, you know, we've already talked about some of the things I'm looking for. Again, like my number one concern is I just... I didn't want any puppy who already seemed anxious or fearful or came from anxious or fearful or aggressive parents, you know, and that can be pretty hard to weed out at a young age. So the biggest thing I'm looking for are that the parents and any other known relatives are, you know, kind of emotionally stable, confident, happy-go-lucky dogs. And then I'm just making sure that I'm not getting a puppy from the litter who's an outlier in any direction as far as that goes. So when we did the temperament tests, there was two puppies that were quite a bit shyer than the siblings. And, you know, I pretty much ruled those two out right away, um, even though they might be fine. Um, again, their parents and their genetics back them up and they're probably going to grow up to be just fine. But because that's so important to me, ruled them out. So started there, you know, and then the other things I'm thinking about are often kind of important for the breed as well. So I'm looking at dogs that tend to be highly driven. I want a dog who is willing and able to work long, hard hours. So I am not looking for a couch potato. And I personally would rather have a dog who requires me to start getting up at 5am and to go for a bike ride with them than to have a dog who can't keep up with me work-wise. Most people are going to err in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be the wise thing for most people to do. But, you know, I am who I am, I guess. Um, <laughs> You know, and then, you know, I've talked about some of my color and coat type preferences. Um, you know, I do, I am in a unique situation right now in that I'm currently unemployed. So I have a lot of flexibility as far as puppy raising and all of that, but I am hoping to be starting grad school in about nine months. So, you know, also thinking that through, which 
you know, just again, points towards, I want a puppy who's going to be adaptable and able to deal with those sorts of things. Um, so I think that's most of what I had. Amber, how did you go around with, with Jameson? I know we've already talked about the breeder, but. Yeah. So, um, you know, picking the breed was the first step and I knew that I wanted a breed that, um, could travel with me easily, um, and, uh, fit under the seat in an airplane and, uh, be, ready to go at the moment's notice. And so, uh, that was one of the things that drew me to a small dog and then narrowing it down to the Papillon more specifically, I ha have had Aussies in the past and I, I love them dearly. And I wanted a dog that had some of the similar enthusiasm for life that I see in the Aussie breed. And, uh, in my experience with Papillons, they kind of fit with that, um, just always enthusiastic to do things. Um, and so I, I kind of, <laughs> wanted as far as criteria goes, I was like, I need an Aussie and a small dog's body. And, um, <laughs> with, with lots of health and, um, and set up for success, um, behaviorally that comes with like a well-established breed and, uh, and not a, you know, a smaller version of an Aussie breed. So, and then picking the, um, the puppy specifically, I asked, uh, one of the big criterias that I had was, um, confident in all all settings at least as confident or as generalized to all settings as we could get with a uh an eight-week-old puppy before bringing it home and so when i was discussing jamie with um, the breeder she sent me photos of him and he was on all sorts of different obstacles in their yard um i think many of the photos she sent he's on a rock he's on a um you know, approaching a horse and touching it with his nose, like he's doing all these, um, you know, really confident outgoing things. And so that was a really, um, like a check in the box as far as that criteria goes. Um, and then of course, health is a given health is a given. Um, mm -hmm. we've, we talked about that extensively in our picking a breeder search. Um, but having, that confidence piece and the the size factor <laughs> was, were probably the two biggest criterias for me um, and the willingness to like uh, of the puppy to want to do things and want to, you know, engage with uh, humans and play and all of those, um, you know, confidence and friend friendly inspiring behaviors uh, was top of my list for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Meg, I know with Han, he was a singleton, so. <laughs> yeah, so um, I had kind of a different situation from the two of you um, in that I did have, this is a litter that my family bred. He was born at my sister's house, um, and he pretty much is the culmination of a lot of what I have always tried to do with our breeding program in terms of bringing different lines into the pedigree and all sorts of things. And so, you know, it was very special in that way. Um, and then when we discovered that he was a singleton, it was, it's a very different process from what we're all of what we're talking about in terms of picking a puppy. And Amber touched a little bit on this last time with not having a ton of choice, um, with, uh, Jamie as well. And I remember, you know, sitting, his mother had to have a C-section and I sat in the vet's office with her in recovery as, you know, trying to get the puppy to nurse and that sort of thing. And he was like an hour old. And I remember, you know, just looking at him and saying, well, it's you and me, bud. Uh, you know, you're coming home with me. This is the plan. Um, he was the result of a frozen semen breeding from a dog that I lost about four years ago, who is extremely special to our family. Um, and so there was no real um, thought about whether or not he was coming home with me. Um, but I do think that the reason I was able to be flexible with that is because I do have a multi-dog household. Um, I, I am willing to do different activities with my dogs based on what their desires are. Cause I'm kind of a hobby sport person. I'm not super serious about any one sport except for nose work, which most dogs can do on some level. Um, and so that was, you know, the main thing that, you know, I, I can, be pretty sure that most of, you know, most puppies would like nose work. And other than that, I was really willing to um, let my future dog be whoever he wanted to be. Um, and I have other dogs that can fill other roles. So, you know, yes, I would like to be able to be a demo dog for my business, but 
um, I, you know, have a multi-dog household. So there are other dogs that can fill in if, you know, this dog is not ready for that job yet. Um, and so that gave me some flexibility in a different way that um, I didn't have as specific of goals in, in some ways as some people might um, with this dog. So yeah, it was interesting because I didn't have a lot of choice in the matter, but I was willing to uh, kind of set expectations and manage my expectations in such a way that whoever he becomes, that I will be happy with that. And because I did kind of stack the deck in my favor for with a pedigree full of dogs that I love and have enjoyed working with, um, it is no surprise to me that he is turning out to be exactly what I wanted and expected from him. But um, I think it was important for me to be willing to take that step back and say he may not be exactly who I, you know, who I suspect that he will be. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point from like you, you know, his, his grandparents, you know, his parents, you know, his lines. Um, and if you have stacked the deck in the in your favor that much, then kind of going with the puppy that life or the breeder hands to you makes a lot of sense versus um, I have a client right now who's in the process. My my job working with them has been trying to help them decide whether or not they're going to keep a puppy um, who's currently about six months old. Um, he's a pointer breed, um, not a German short-haired pointer. I can't remember exactly what he is. He's a, a rare breed. He was a singleton puppy. Um, they didn't quite know what they were getting into. I think they'd read a couple too many just kind of opinion pieces on the internet that said they're great with kids. Uh, they went to the breeder. The parents were both kind of in a pen barking and spinning in the back. They had a single puppy and they were like, great, this is the one, you know, they, they got as far into the research process of looking at the breed. Um, and then because it's a rare breed, they just kind of took what was handed to them. And I think had they potentially had a little bit more knowledge, you know, when we were talking this through in our first call, they were like, Ooh, we should have thought more about how mom and dad were acting, shouldn't we? I was like, yeah. <laughs> you know, if they had had a litter of 13, maybe you could have picked, or even, you know, a litter of six, you could have maybe picked the chill one who just, you know, the fat, happy one asleep in the food bowl, and he might have worked out much better for you. But when you only had the one, and it doesn't really sound like the parents were exactly what you were looking for. You're not super experienced with the breed. That's very, very different from what sounds like it happened happened with you, Megan. So, you know, it's it, this is the tough thing about doing this all over the podcast is it all is gray zone and it kind of depends. But I think it's important to highlight, you know, why part, part of why it worked out so well for you, Megan. Or it sounds like it is. You know, I know he was tough to potty train. <laughs> Other than that, he's been fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take a quick ad break and then go back for a couple more um, points to think about when picking a puppy. So this podcast is supported by Journey Dog Training and our Puppy Raising Blueprint course. If you're feeling lost with puppy raising, check out the course at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. The course covers topics ranging from common problem behaviors and socialization to the humane hierarchy of dog trainers, of dog training. <laughs> And it's all taught by me, uh, Kayla Fratt. And if you guys need more personalized training support, you can check out journeydogtraining.com where we've got a variety of courses, eBooks, and remote training services available. So for most people, if they're looking at kind of a litter of puppies and they know they like the parents, they know they like the breed, they've spoken with the breeder, um, but maybe the breeder isn't telling them which puppy to take home what are some of the things that they might want to look for in a litter? Say there's there's 10 puppies to choose from. Um, Megan, do you want to tackle that right away? Sure. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the points that we had down is that like going for kind of the average puppy within a lit litter for most people is going to be your safest bet. Um, you don't necessarily want to go with the puppy that's hiding in the corner. Um, and you don't necessarily want to go with the puppy that's trying to climb out of the puppy box. Um, that kind of average uh, puppy is great. Um, I wasn't around for this, but I'm told that when my family picked the golden retriever that I grew up with, um, my older sister was, I think, four or five, and they went with the puppy that wasn't pulling at her skirt the entire time. Um, because they felt like that would be a really hard behavior to manage with a small child and having a puppy that was obsessive about tugging on clothes. 
And so they picked a puppy that was just kind of sitting back and being a little calm. Right. So, yeah. And that's a really interesting um, thing for us to remember because often that type of behavior might be interpreted as like, oh, the puppy loves me. They're trying to interact with me. They're really excited. They love my my child. This is going to be a great family pet, the one that's tugging and trying to interact. And like, mm-hmm. if we think that behavior all the way through to what that means when that puppy is 60 pounds and um, has razor sharp puppy teeth, like that's a, a not as pleasant of a hallmark moment. <laughs> Absolutely. Or yeah, you think about the puppy who's climbing the baby gate and screaming, trying to get back into your arms. Super cute. It makes you feel really special when the puppy's nine weeks old. Not going to be so cute when the puppy's 10 weeks old and you're trying to cook dinner. Um, And that doesn't mean you can't. I mean, the puppy I took home was the one who consistently like he's the escape artist and he's very independent. But again, you know, that fits within what I'm looking for. It doesn't mean that these puppies that we're talking about are bad puppies. It's just, you know, for most people, you you know, my my family chose the uh, the lab that I grew up with. My family, you know, I chose similarly. We had a litter. Of, it was 13 uh, or 14 chocolate labs. I don't remember. Um, I was in fifth grade. My sister was in third grade. And Maya was the puppy that crawled up and fell asleep in someone's lap. I don't remember whose. Um and she came from a litter that had been bred for bird hunting dogs. She still ended up being quite a lot of dog for us, um, but we were able to keep up with her. And I have no doubt that if we went with a puppy who wanted to play tug of war the most or something, you know, like that, we we probably would have been overwhelmed. Amber, do you have anything else to add as far as just kind of like general tips for when you're looking at a litter? Yeah. So um, I also like to look at the puppies that aren't at either end of the extreme, which I think we've mentioned. And this goes for like uh, engagement with you um, as well as like confidence interacting with the other dogs. Um, So if you have a puppy Mm -hmm. that's just incessantly pestering their litter mates or their mom and they're not taking corrections or appropriate play um, cues from the other puppies, like that's, again, maybe a signal that this dog is going to be a lot to handle. And if you are, um, you know, the kind of person who wants a dog that, um, is going to be go, go, go. And maybe you're um, equipped to help them learn how to rein it in a little bit. That's great. But if they are not really adept at listening to social cues from puppy, other puppies, like that's going to be a problem we're going to want to work on really, really carefully early on in the puppy's life. And so picking the puppy that's like, yeah, I'm going to play a little bit. And then if my brother tells me off, I'm going to shrug it off and go, you know, walk away and no big deal. I'm going to go find someone else to play with or get a toy. Um, and not the puppy that's like, Oh, you, you want to start something? Let's, let's go, let's rumble. Um, or the puppy that, um, you know, is in the corner and doesn't even come out to engage at all. So we want, kind of that middle of the road um, in the dog social aspect as well as the people social aspect. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, just talking to the breeder as well um, about what is typical for them. So if you're kind of there picking them up and they're, um, you know, they're eight weeks old and your breeder is just looking at them being like, gosh, I really didn't expect this one to be the one doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that matters. It, it um, you know, this is, and this is where we're about to go into our next topic, which is temperament tests and how they're, they're a useful tool, but they're not incredibly predictive. So, you know, just know that picking up the puppy on that day, it's still important. Even if the breeder isn't picking for you, even if the breeder didn't do temperament tests, kind of have a dialogue with them. And, you know, so for example, with Maya, when she crawled up in my parents' laps or my lap or whoever's it was, I don't remember, Um, you know, if the breeder looked at that and been like, wow, she's usually the, you know, the worst one, she must've really worn herself out that morning. You know, we would have been wise to heed that note from them. And I, I don't remember, but I, my parents were very research oriented when we got her. And I assume that they asked the breeder, like, "Is, is this typical for her? You know, is she normally a pretty easy puppy? Um, and you know, it worked out. So make sure that you take that into account. So, you know, when I had visited my breeder 
if my puppy and I went was it when they were about six weeks old and if my the one that I had been really keeping an eye on and she had told me to keep an eye on personality wise had seemed a little off that weekend that would have given me pause but it wouldn't have necessarily meant I backed out mm-hmm. so yeah let's talk a little bit about temperament tests. Um, And I think when I put together the show notes for this, I'll include some other kind of in-depth research articles because some tests have more predictive value than others. Um, But, you know, they're, they're, they're a useful tool, but they generally are not going to suffice as your only tool. So I don't know, Megan, do you do temperament testing with your puppies? What are kind of your thoughts with it? Yeah, so generally we did, although it's funny because when um, Han was, I think, seven weeks old or something, I asked my sister, like, oh, are we going to do temperament testing? Normally we have someone else come in, but with COVID, that wasn't really a possibility. And she looked at me and said, why? Like, you're taking him anyway. Does it really matter what how he does on this series of tests? And I said, no, it really doesn't. And so we didn't really do anything formal. Um, but we have done um, some uh, a variety of different temperament tests over the years because we started breeding, you know, 16 years ago. And so lots of information has changed and different sorts of tests are recommended and that sort of thing. Um, there's one that I know that um, my mom did with her Dutch. She helped raise a litter of Dutch shepherds for the Pen Vet Working Dog Center. And then her uh, puppy is from that litter. And I believe it was developed by the US Navy, I think it is. And that is um, actually a series of tests. Um, And we did do a little bit of this with Han just to, um, you know, kind of get some ideas on how he would respond to different things. But it's a lot of varied experiences with a lot of detailed notes about how the puppy responds to those different things. And you do the test, um, I think it's once a week or maybe even more frequently than that for like, you know, week six, seven, eight, nine, however long you keep them. Um, And so I don't have all the specifics on that test, but I know that it really includes um, a lot about resiliency and, you know, kind of the puppy's ability back from kind of scary experiences and how they respond to novel experiences. Um, So there are definitely, you know, tests out there that I think give you a better picture because I think a lot of uh, temperament testing is very much a moment in time. Um, Like you said that, you know, puppies can go through something weird. Um, Although I think it's important to note, like if you have a stranger come in to do your temperament testing and all of a sudden the puppy is acting very differently than they normally do when familiar people are around, like, yeah, it could be a fluke, but that can also be really valuable information. Um, so I think that it can be really, um, it can be helpful, but I think it's very important to remember it's a moment in time. And I think the more information we can gather, the better. So I have a good friend that is a silk and wind hound breeder, and she does a lot of videoing of her temperament tests, um, so that she can go back and look at those and actually see it's not just like, oh, the puppy got a three on this. It is this is what the puppy's response was to this stimuli. So yeah. I think that can be really helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there are um, there are a lot of things that can be good about it. But like you said, when they really study it, um, it doesn't seem to have a ton of predictive value for adult temperament. Yeah, I know. I kind of view the temperament testing I got to participate in for my puppy as kind of get to know you exercises. Um And, you know, and I can even see from our video, you know, one of the things we did is we dropped a water bottle onto like a little metal water bottle onto a hardwood floor to kind of see how they would respond to that loud noise. And some of the puppies had it dropped from quite a bit higher of a height than some of the others. And I actually noticed, um, and I didn't say this aloud to the breeder at the time, um, but it seemed like she was dropping it from a lower height for the more nervous puppies. you know, so I think that's probably where some of the lack of predictive value may come in. Um, but it's still useful to get to see um, a lot of this, this sort of stuff, um, especially if you only get so much video of a puppy. Having some video that is kind of intentionally structured um, can be really, really helpful, you know, versus just more video of the puppy sleeping or eating or playing or whatever. Um, and yeah, I think it's 
a lot of the temperament tests involve some broad similarities. You know, they might expose the puppy to a new person, a new place, a new surface or substrate or something they have to climb on or get over, um, a sudden environmental change like an umbrella opening. A lot of those things are pretty common and then some amount of problem solving. And I think there's a lot of desire in in the uh, in the scientific literature to search for the perfect temperament test that's really going to have that predictive value. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see if they ever find it. Um, I suspect it is going to end up being something like what you described, Megan, where it is more of like a variety of tests or the, you know, the same test repeated week over week. Um, and I think generally one of the things I find interesting with temperament tests as well is I don't know how useful they are as kind of a standalone thing, but they might be useful, to, especially, you know, these trends over time, because you assume that if you drop a water bottle on the floor once a week, every week, their startle, resp their startle response is likely to decrease week over week. But you might see one puppy's startle response decrease less than his litter mate. So I think a lot of times they're most valuable um, asset is actually in comparisons within the litter. Does that kind of ring true to you guys? Yeah, I would say so. I think it, it gives you some comparison tools. Like I said, as a breeder, you have to often kind of look at the list of people that you have waiting for a puppy as a whole and try to decide how this litter fits into that because often we have more requests for puppies than we have puppies. Um, and so I think that temperament testing can help in some of those kind of comparisons um, to determine, right? Like if a puppy doesn't really ever show any tug drive or a very strong tug drive, we're absolutely never going to place that puppy in a search and rescue home. It's just not going to be successful. Um, if they are always the first one hanging on the tug toy, or as a video that we have of Han when he was a puppy, he fell asleep tugging um, from something that was hanging above his box. And um, that that does seem to be something that, um, you know, carries over um, that those puppies tend to have a lot of tug drive when they're adults. And that's something that's really important for their future as, uh, you know, a working search dog. But I think as, you know, like the Pin Vet Working Dog Center has found out, I think part of it is there are a lot of other factors that can go into, especially being a professional working dog, because um, I think that um, they and then groups like service dog organizations have probably put the most research into puppy temperament testing because it's very important for them to to be able to select puppies. Yeah. Um, that a lot of times the the washouts, it's not because they didn't have tug drive, right? It's because they were weird about slick floors or they were you know, became more reactive to other dogs or things that the, the temperament test may not have really actually been able to accurately predict because it wasn't really tested, right? We don't know how a week old puppy is going to fare in yeah. terms of dog sociability long-term because there's a lot of factors that are involved in that. And so I think that it, you also have to kind of look at like um, what with these groups that are temperament testing a lot of puppies and looking for that predictive value, um, they can't always test for all of the factors that are going to be necessary for that dog to be successful in their job. Um, so I think that that's probably a lot of why we see some of these, um, you know, studies coming out showing that it's not as predictive because we don't know all of the factors or we, we can't test for all of those factors in a puppy. Well, and I know with PenVet in particular, and I would assume with the vast majority of these groups in general, um, and even breeders, you know, you identify at seven weeks, like, ooh, that puppy was a little bit more sensitive to sudden noises, um, or all my puppies are a little bit more sensitive to sudden noises than I had hoped. You're probably going to correct that um, over the next couple weeks um, if you're worth your salt as a breeder and puppy raiser. Um, so that is also probably a big factor in it. So it's a snapshot in time. And if you notice something um, on that litter, like I know with my puppy that he was incredibly persistent with trying to solve a food puzzle, which is part of why I picked him. It's also th something I'm going to be keeping an eye on with him because I think one of the things he's likely to really struggle with is disengaging. And I suspect he might be a food thief, um, ultimately. While I was there, he actually, he was sitting under a table screaming uh, and walked over and was like, oh, the raw food is thawing on the table, you know? 
And all the other puppies were totally ignoring it and just going about doing their thing. But he had tried to climb onto the table and it was a, it was like a chest height, um, like a bar height table. Um, you know, there was no way he could get to it. Um, and that would be something that might be a red flag for other people. And even though it's part of why I want him, it's certainly something I'm keeping an eye on as like, oh man, disengagement and learning how to deal with not being able to get what you want is one of my top priorities with him, um, probably starting tomorrow. <laughs> Um, so I think kind of the last point that we've already made to a little bit, um, and I'll let Amber kind of close it out with this is just that if you have really specific needs or wants for your puppy and whether that's coat type or personality or energy level, um, accepting that the right puppy might not be in a given litter or even potentially from a given breeder or breed, um, you know, Amber, you can talk to this a little bit cause you've talked about, um, I mean, well, yeah, you go for yeah. it. <laughs> so yeah, being willing to walk away, I think is, um, one of the, um, most important safety features to make sure you end up with the right dog for you. Um, if you are willing to say, to take those red flags and, um, and say, this isn't the puppy for me and walk away, then, then you're going to, you will find the puppy for you eventually. Um, and if you have specific needs and desires for your future life with your puppy, then it's really important to stick to your guns and say, this pup, uh, this puppy won't fit into that life because you're going to save yourself a lot of, um, heartache and headache down the road. Like if you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, a puppy that just doesn't fit into your lifestyle, then you're going to have really a lot of conflict with that dog or with your family members who are saying, let's go do this. And the, and the dog can't go do that. Um, or with yourself and being disappointed. And so we want to make sure that we, we take home the dog that's going to fit perfectly with us. Um, one of the things I, I really recommend doing to make sure that you are thinking, um, thinking like, uh, rationally, that's a kind of a strong term there, but, um, is to make sure that you have people on your puppy picking team who can bounce ideas off, uh, off of you with, whether that's a friend that goes with you to evaluate, like to meet puppies. Um, you know, I drove with my best friend 11 hours, um, to meet her puppies while they were, um, still, I think they were six weeks old and we, uh, she didn't know which one was hers at that point. And the whole 11 hours home, we discussed the different puppies mm -hmm. and, um, and, and had kind of this checks and balances and, and were, I was able to say, I don't think that's the puppy for you. Um, the one that she was like, this one's really cool. And I was like, I saw some things and we were able to talk it out. And, um, mm -hmm. thankfully at the breeder also saw those same things and was, uh, you know, placed the, the puppy with, uh, with my friend that was the perfect one for her. And, the that just it takes a village in some ways so Absolutely. take someone with you if you're worried about getting emotionally attached um take that video and send it out to your network of um dog people in your life that say and say what do you see tell me what you what you see and get some ad additional perspectives um to to really help you out I know I, I found the admin group from the pandemic puppy support group really helpful for that. I was, I was, I was very anxious as I was kind of between six weeks and nine weeks is tomorrow. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it was very helpful to be able to balance it around with people. And if you don't have people like that in your corner, uh, go ahead and check out the pandemic puppy raising support group on Facebook. Um, and I'm sure people in the group would be happy to bounce ideas around with you or, um, point you towards other groups that might even be more appropriate for that. Um, so we'll close it out here. Um, friendly reminder that the podcast is supported by our members on Patreon because we're recording this episode before episodes have actually started dropping. We don't have any Patreon questions yet, but um, for as little three, as $3 a month, you guys can support the podcast and you'll get perks like submitting questions for us to tackle at the end of each episode. So if you go ahead and um, subscribe on Patreon, then you can submit questions. We'll let you know what topics are for each episode. Um, and then right now we would be answering any specific questions about picking your puppy, raising your puppy. Um, those questions won't necessarily have to be related to the podcast itself. And that's over at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. 
So over the next couple episodes, we're going to be covering a lot of these same topics, but from the shelter lens. So we'll talk about looking at picking a shelter, picking a puppy from a shelter, because there will be some things that are different, um, varies quite widely. So make sure you guys check that out. And then we'll start getting into some of the puppy proofing and puppy raising episodes later on. So Amber, why don't we start with you? Where can listeners find you online? Uh, um, I can be found at summitdogtraining.com or on Facebook slash Summit Dog Training or Instagram um, at Summit Dog Training. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel um, and some online courses uh, that are on our website as well. Awesome. And Megan? Yep. You can find me online at dogsdeciphered.com, um, on Facebook or Instagram at dogsdeciphered. And I also have an online uh, portal for a couple of uh, nose work classes if you're interested in that. Very cool. I'm going to be sending some clients your way, I think. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, review, and consider supporting the podcast and getting even more amazing information and access by joining our Patreon over at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. You guys can sign up for the puppy raising blueprint course at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint and join the free pandemic puppy raising support group over on Facebook where admin like Amber, Megan, and I and several other amazing trainers are going to be thrilled to help you guys out with as much free puppy training advice as we can, we can handle. <laughs> so thanks again for listening, guys. Bye.